have noticed certain patterns. So women tend to be a lot more open about how they feel. Women tend to be able to even identify what they're feeling a little bit more easily than a man would. I would meet with some men and they would only have like three words to describe all their feelings. It was always like, I'm frustrated or I'm mad or I'm sad and that's it. Like there's nothing in between. <laughs> Very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast and this YouTube channel are solely the views of the individuals involved. It does not reflect the views of their organizations, employers, and employees, past, present, and future. Uncool is produced by Creators at Work and Story Machine. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Winchong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ung. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. Welcome to Season 5 of Uncool Podcast, the How to Talk to People edition, where we explore communication and how to initiate products in the modern life today. You could also be talking to people and a single line or word can impact a person's life forever. And that brings us to our guest for today, Jewel Kim. So Jewel is a life coach who specialises in empowering women entrepreneurs, executives, and leaders. So she calls herself an imposter syndrome expert and is based in Seattle. Welcome, Jewel. Hello, thank you for having me. So, Jewel, what's your story? Why did you decide to become a life coach? It was 2020, you know, pandemic happened. And back then, I used to be a photographer. And the government shut down all non-essential businesses. And at the same time, there was a business coach who asked me for help with her marketing. So I'm actually, I have a background in marketing. She wanted my help with her business. And then in return, she gave me her coaching. And so from the very beginning, when I experienced her coaching, I thought, oh my God, how is this a thing? I didn't know that you could actually be paid for this, that this could be a career. And so just... Within a month and a half after that very first coaching session, I was enrolled in a coach training program and I have not looked back since. So you were a photographer before and a marketing before? That's right. I used to work in corporate as a content manager. Um, I did content marketing, I did SEO, and I also worked at companies like Amazon as a product manager. But you went to school for mathematics, right? Correct. So have you ever practiced your, your mathematics education? Probably the closest I came to that was when I was doing product management at Amazon and I was creating reports. So, you know, business intelligence reports on how the content was performing. That's about it. Not really. Yeah, like real simple stuff. You know, I would say running that kind of report is really more statistics, not the kind of math that I was doing for my major. I then go on to law school and drop out of law school. I then go to, you know, corporate world and, you know, I have some jobs. You know, I, I'm at Microsoft, I'm at a startup, I'm at Amazon, and then I drop, you know, I drop all of that and I go into photography. Like, can you imagine what our parents <laughs> were saying? I'm trying to imagine how that conversation turned out when you told like your mom or your dad, like, hey, guess what I'm going to do next? Well, when I dropped out of law school, my mom definitely had some words to say, but you can probably imagine, okay, it was some not nice words in Korean. <laughs> and then when I was working in corporate, this is where I think it gets real interesting because my parents are entrepreneurs. And so whereas most of the parents that I know of, they want you to really stick with the plan. You know, you're going to go in, you're going to start getting promoted and you're going to get higher and higher in the company's, you know, corporate ladder. But my dad kept telling me, you need to do your own thing. 
you won't ever make that much money working for someone else. You need to start your own business. But I'm like 27 at the time. I'm like, what the hell do I know about starting a business? Let me spend some time in the corporate world and just kind of figure out what's what. And so that's how it came about. When I finally dropped out, like honestly, I was just so burned out from Amazon. And I quit and my dad actually congratulated me. He actually bought me my first pro DSLR camera to help me like try and, you know, make the move. Because in his mind, he thought having your own business is better than working for the man. Oh, wow. So your your parents actually had very different viewpoints about how your career should be going. That was interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. My mom, when I dropped out of law school, she was just screaming, you're supposed to be a judge. You're supposed to be a judge. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that you got some support you know, behind you, though, for that. How has it been going then? Was it a very huge change for yourself personally as well? So you know how in my background, we talked about the math, the law school, and then I worked in content, which is oddly creative. But when you work for a corporate company, not so much, you know, it's not like you're writing like the most witty or interesting or entertaining content at all. No, you're teaching 100% of the time, like how to do this, how to do that. And so I think what happened for me, like the biggest challenge of going to coaching was really understanding other people. And I would say that I really lacked emotional intelligence. And this is where I say the really interesting thing about me doing photography in between corporate and coaching now is I don't think I would have been able to do coaching straight from corporate to coaching. Because with photography, you have to learn the skills to build rapport with your clients. You have to really understand their facial expressions and their body language. Is how they're presenting themselves the correct look for how they want the photo to actually convey that message? You know, does all of it match? There's so much to photography that I think people never think about. All they think about is, is the picture pretty? You know, does the person look good? But it's really about like, what kind of message does that person convey when you look at that photo? So that's where... You see a ton of photographers who clearly don't get that. And when you look at photos online, how many photos have you seen, especially of men, where you look at them and you're like, that's a fake smile. That's not a real smile. And that's because most men think that smiling too big is like too much, right? It's, it's like too crazy. And, and men in general, they tend to think that they need to look cool or mysterious or, you know, something. And they, and they don't understand that really the goal is most of the time you want to look approachable. So with with coaching, it would have been so much harder had I not had photography in the middle. But I think even with photography, the biggest challenge for me was to learn how to put myself in other people's shoes, to accurately label their emotions and understand what they're feeling. But then the biggest challenge for everyone is to stop assuming you know what that person is thinking, to learn to be curious. Why did you start with the creative side though? Because of my photography, I really understood what it means to be a creative and all of the obstacles that come with that creative mindset. You know, there's that perfectionism, there's the imposter syndrome, the constant fear of never being good enough and then never putting anything out because of that. You know, I spent the first two years of my photography journey making no money because of imposter syndrome. So that's the kind of story I was telling a lot more commonly before. And so all the creatives, were coming to me because they could see that I understood that. So who's, uh, you mentioned your, your clients and so on. So who's your, who's your usual client? 
So if you had asked me this question a year ago, it would have been all creative entrepreneurs. And I know, you know, that's mainly the type of people you like to talk to, the creatives. This year, it has been switching a little bit. So now I would say I'm about 50-50, still some creative, you know, half creative entrepreneurs. So people like photographers, designers, you know, I've coached a VP at VMware. So it can be any range of those really senior or executive people. So you, you publicize yourself or you know you shout out about yourself as a a person who coached specifically women but do you also have men among your clients or is it specific like you know no no men at all i will coach men but you're totally right it's probably like less than 10 percent of my clients are men and that's that was even true before i specifically started calling out women in my you know marketing it, it used to just say people like people in a certain job or a certain type of field but even then it was usually not men and you can probably guess why men tend to not ask for help so how how do they talk differently have you noticed that you know um, you're having dealt with well both genders now I think I have noticed certain patterns. So women tend to be a lot more open about how they feel. Women tend to be able to even identify what they're feeling a little bit more easily than a man would. And that's just from social conditioning, cultural conditioning. You know, very often I would meet with some men and they would only have like three words to describe all their feelings. It was always like, I'm frustrated or I'm mad or I'm sad. And that's it. Like there's nothing in between. (laughs) Very efficient. (laughs) Sean, is that the case? Frustrated man. It's it's a very efficient way of describing. But anyway. (laughs) So I'm curious though, because the men who come to you also come to you for a reason. They have identified something that they need help with. You know, who are the usual men clients that you have then? Do they have specific problems that they come to you with and say, okay, this is what I need help with, Joe. Can you help me with this? You know, that is such a great question. No one has ever asked me that. And you asking me that made me realize all of the men, and it's not like I had a ton of them. It's really like probably about five men total. But all of the men wanted help with determining their next step. They're not happy with what they do now for work or their career. They're not happy. They feel stuck and they wanted help finding clarity in their next direction. Well, then as opposed to the women then, how? what kind of issues or what's their barrier when they come to you? Well, women tend to come to me with help around confidence. They know they don't feel confident. So on the entrepreneur side, they're the ones who know that they're holding themselves back in their business. They're afraid to raise their prices. So for instance, instance, for example, one of my clients, she's a photographer. And back when I first met her back in 2021, she was charging something like two or $300 for a photo session and giving them so many photos. And today, she just started working with me last year. So now we've been working together for about a year. She now charges at like a minimum of $2,000 per session. Wow. And it is a lot of work around your mindset to get you there. Now, I'm not saying she's like super comfortable about it. Definitely not at all. And and this is the problem with most creative entrepreneurs. It's like you suggest to them that they raise their prices because they're complaining about how burned out they are. And I'm like, well, you know, one of the quickest ways to make more money is to raise your prices, get rid of some of those nightmare clients who don't want to pay you very much. And you can still make more money with fewer clients. And what's the first thing they they think? They freak out because they think my clients aren't going to think I'm worth it. And I'm like, well, of course they're not. 
you know, this is a move. This is a transition. You're going to have to leave some of these people behind to access some of the people at the next level. And, and so this client, for instance, she raised her prices so many times after working with me. I think she went from that $300 price. By the time I started working with her last year, she was at like 600. And I was like, that's, that's still not enough. So then she raises to 800 to 1000 to 1200 and I'm like <laughs> you're like going up like little by little by little and she's like okay fine f- it. And, you know 2000 I'm like there you go 2000 but then she's you know now she's like oh my god Jewel I don't have many bookings on my calendar and I was like yes I-, I warned you this would happen and so now she's like I don't have any bookings like I feel like nobody thinks I'm worth it and I was like okay do you remember what you were telling me like six months ago? You were burned out. You were telling me multiple times you didn't want to spend so much time working for so little. But now you're complaining you don't have enough bookings. I was like, so either way, it's like you're going to be unhappy. So why don't you pick which unhappy you want? This is great way to think about it though. This is the first time I'm hearing something like that and I'm like, hmm, that's food for thought. <laughs> hey friends, before we continue with this episode, I think you should check out Self-Love Affirmations and Reflections by Jewel Kim on Amazon today. This set of affirmation cards go beyond the typical generic positive affirmation sets that you see on the market because each card comes with a reflection that bridges the gap between where you are now versus where you want to be. Use these cards to dive deep into yourselves. You might even find answers to some hard questions that might feel uncomfortable. Scan this QR code to find out more. And for our audio-only listeners, search for Joel Kim on Amazon.com. You can also find out more about Joel's services at taplink.cc slash Kim. From her SEO for Beginners workshop to a self-discovery session where you figure out why you feel stuck in whatever is going on and actually do something about it. This sounds pretty cool to me. So that's really interesting though because um, I mean this whole podcast or this whole series is about how you communicate, right? So it's interesting that you brought up communicating through your photos. And then now, how you communicate as a life coach is also very different. Do you have to code switch sometimes, you know, as when you are talking as a coach and then you find yourself talking to your friends and then you, you turn into a different personality altogether or does that carry through every aspect of your life? You know, that's a really good question. And so in my first year or two, I was code switching. I was thinking, oh, there's me with my coaching hat on and me with my coaching hat off. And that's a very common term that you'll hear coaches say, coaching hat on or off. And that's the biggest mistake you'll ever make. Because what happens is when you have the coaching hat, quote unquote, on, you are leaving certain parts of yourself behind. You think that you cannot have your own personal opinions. You think that you cannot bring your own perspectives into the coaching session. So that's the kind of code switching that tends to happen is like me, the coach, I have to follow all these rules. I can't ask these kind of things. I can't say these kind of things. I can't even say I. So it's it's just such a bunch of garbage. And the day that I stopped doing that and I realized it's almost like I had a compartment in my mind. And this is very common for people in corporate and also people, you know, in the Asian culture. We think there's, you know, a time to be professional and then a time to be personal. And you're really all the same person. Like you you can't code switch to that degree and think that there will be no impact. So as a coach, when I see people doing that now, like newer coaches, they think 
you can't have any of your own personal opinions, all of that. And I was just like, no, no, no. Like you have to stop thinking that. You have to stop thinking that you are a separate or different person when you're coaching versus when you are yourself in your real normal life. The goal is to have you show up as the same person as much as possible, no matter what context or what setting you're in. That's a great philosophy because I'm thinking if the reason why a person would choose you as a life coach as compared to any other life coach out there is because of the fact that it's you, Ju, Ju Kim, who's who's speaking to me. So for you to inject a little bit of yourself into the conversation, into the coaching sessions, I think that's what makes it special, isn't it? Yeah, it's people hire you because they feel some sort of connection with you. Like obviously, they hire you because they want you to give them some sort of result, of course. But they hire you because there's some sort of connection with you as the person, your personality. And ultimately, like where that comes in, if you inject yourself, like there is, yes, a right way and a wrong way to do this. But ultimately, your clients want to see what it is you see of them. What is it that you're noticing about them? And how can you communicate those observations in a way that helps them gain greater awareness or clarity about who they are so they can go and do something with that? Is that how creatives should be branding themselves then? In the sense, you should just choose, I guess, uh, what, what, you know, how, unha- how unhappy or, or, or and, and just, uh, you know, it's fine if you take less work. It's, you know, it's just, I'm fine with less volume. I'd rather just, just charge higher. You know, is it, how would you get to that stage whereby you say, okay, that, that, that's okay. Because we've been conditioned to really scrounge around and take everything that comes our way, right? Most of the time. Especially creatives, yes. <laughs> yeah. So so if you have any advice to for someone who wants to, get over the, the imposter syndrome or something, what, what would be, I think, the main thing they need to know? This is not going to be popular, but I think this is the truth. You have to stop deriving all of your confidence from how smart you are, how good you are at the job, how capable you are at doing something. You have to stop thinking that that is all of your confidence because that's pretty much the core. So for, for example, you know, I mentioned how it took me two years in photography. I made no money. It's because I felt that I was a terrible photographer. So what did I do? I spent all the time attending classes and workshops. It, it was mainly watching classes. I'm one of those crazy people. I think in the first two years, I bought over 100 classes on photography and lighting and Photoshop, and, you know, crazy person. And one day my husband goes, when are you going to take photos? <laughs> He's like, when are you going to take some freaking photos? He's like, you probably know more than most of the other photographers out there. On the technical knowledge side, you know more than 99% of the other people. When are you going to take some photos? And see, so I was doing that thing. I felt like a fraud. But it's like, how on earth will you ever get better at photography if you don't take any blasted photos? (laughs) Joe, you just reminded me of the time when I was spending like thousands of dollars on, um, I was going through the same thing, but really about entrepreneurship and, you know, getting your, your, a lot of self-help courses, basically. I need to be better. I want to be better. I want to be my own business. I earn more money. And then at a certain point, I was like, you know, if I'm spending all my time doing this, I think I can be spending the time actually going out to do it <laughs> so yeah there was a hard stop for me over there and then once you know you you t- put all that you have learned into action and then oh that's when it clicks <laughs> I, I guess it's like a it's like a lack of confidence as well i guess yeah so what most creatives will do is they think they have to feel confident first to do the thing 
And in order to feel confident first, they have to feel like they have all the knowledge, they have all the skill, they have to prepare to feel confident to then do the thing. And so there is once this metaphor, this coach I know has such a great visual. He said, you need to think about confidence and action like the two wheels on a bike. Sorry, not the two wheels, but the two pedals on a bike. So when you push one pedal down, right, what happens? The other pedal also turns. So your confidence and action are very like closely related. You take action, you gain confidence. The number one mistake I see with female creatives to the clients is they let their lack of confidence communicate to the client. Okay, so you have to remember that all clients, no matter what industry or profession you are in, in order for someone to actually be the client, you know, hand over their money and hire you, they have to feel like they're in good hands, that you know what you're doing, that you're going to take care of them. But in order for you to become that image in their mind, you have to ask them questions. So two things, if you feel less than confident, you need to resolve that. You need to face the parts that you feel least confident about. So for me, with photography, I felt like I was a photographer. And the more I denied it, the more I stayed in that place. The longer I kept staying a photographer. Because if you're in denial, you're not doing anything about it. That's the number one thing. You have to resolve the thing that you feel most scared about. You have to face it. And you have to ask yourself, what is the worst thing that I think is going to happen if this is the truth that comes out about me. So for me, I'm like, in my head, I thought, hey, client's going to hire me. They're going to see I'm a photographer. They're going to be like, wow, these photos suck. You have no business being a photographer. I want a refund. So you have to confront whatever that movie is in your head and really ask yourself, okay, and then what? What is the worst thing that would happen? So for me, I'm like, okay, they're going to ask for a refund. You know what? I'm going to give them a refund. But you know what I can also do is give really amazing customer service. I can offer them a reshoot. And if they still don't want that, then I can give them a refund. And that's okay. Because you know what? The truth is my skill level isn't where it could be. And I will learn. The second thing though, right? Like I said, you have to ask enough questions. People make the mistake of assuming they know what the client wants. How can you know if you never ask any questions? You cannot assume. And this is where the way you handle a sales call, just you are wasting that opportunity if you're not asking basic questions like, what would make this experience a success for you? What have you already tried? What's your biggest challenge? What made you choose to talk to me instead of somebody else? How many other people are you interviewing or are you considering? What is it you really need to see in a service provider? Right? You need to ask them the questions. Remember, the client wants to feel taken care of. That's all they want. Few people um, avoid those questions because they're afraid of the answer, more or less, or they feel like, oh, it's inappropriate. But yeah, you're right. Those are crucial questions. Yeah, you gain confidence, you take more action. It's, it's a natural thing. But what creatives will often do is they treat it like a linear fashion where it's like, I must prepare, I must gain all the knowledge, I must get it perfect on the first try. You're trying to hit like a home run on the first swing, essentially. I must feel confident and then I can take action. It's like, no, that's not how this works. That's, that's, that's a good analogy. I'm going to be using that, Jill, just to let you know. <laughs> and if everyone hears me using the analogy in the future, just know that I got it from Jill, who, most, who got it from another mentor. <laughs> but it's, it's, such an apt, yeah, it's such an apt visual for that. Yeah. Creatives, unfortunately, come with a lot of desperation in their mindset. They have 
almost across the board, they all have some sort of money mindset issue because there's something weird that happens to us as soon as money comes into the picture, right? And then with the creative work, there's so much of yourself that goes into the work. So instead of being able to create a little distance and consider you are receiving money for your work, it instead becomes you are receiving money for you. So it's not how much your work is worth. It feels like it is how much yourself is worth. And that's where it gets really tricky for people. This is where they fall down the hole. It's a trap. I would say when we're talking about creatives and you know choosing, yes, I do believe it, it is a little bit of life is full of problems. It's going to be a problem no matter what. So you choose which problem you want to deal with. But when we are talking about price, you do need to resolve some of those issues around your self-worth and understand that how much you charge is not about your self-worth. It is about your ability to deliver value for what the client wants for that exchange, okay? It's just an exchange. You need to be able to give a client something and they need to be give uh, they need to give you money that makes you happy to do this work. That's all that is. And then in terms of pricing, you need to understand that you cannot charge a price that you don't believe in. So you have to be able to feel comfortable with the price. So a very common question I ask my clients is, what is the highest price you feel comfortable that this is a no-brainer for the client? Whatever price they tell me, I'm like, go with that price. It's an interesting thing that uh, you brought up as well, which is then doesn't that uh, bring up the question of I'm really only comfortable charging this much, which is that little bit, because that's what I'm comfortable with. But if I want to push myself to, to you know, get more, earn more, and earn what I'm worth, to push it a little bit higher than that. If you want to make more, there's really only a couple of ways that comes about. You either charge more or you do more work. But then what happens when you do more work? You reach a ceiling. You only have in so much time like X number of hours per day. You have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to see your family. <laughs> it's You're not a machine. Like you are not a robot that can work like 16 hours a day with no break. So it, it's just the reality. So most people, most creatives will immediately, their brain turns first to just doing more work. It's like, okay, and then what's going to happen when you burn out? Then what's the next step? Okay, so now you have learned that there is a physical limit on your time, but also on your creative and physical and mental capacity. Like it just is. When you do too much work, you actually burn out and you start to lose some of that creative energy. I think we've all been there. You have now hit the rock bottom there. What needs to change next? And that's usually where you probably need to restrict some of the offerings. Maybe you need to even change some of your offerings in order to reach some of those higher prices, maybe a, lo a little bit more of a luxury market. So whatever that is, it's like you take your existing skill set, see where you need to level up a little bit or maybe a lot and see what you can actually charge more for. Oh, wow. I love this very practical thought process that goes behind behind this. And and I've noticed you mentioned burnouts. Do you ever face burnout yourself, especially since you are listening and dealing with other people's problems a lot? I experience burnout, but not from that I think from listening and working with clients, that's like some endless well. Where I experience burnout is through social media, constantly creating content for social. You probably don't know, but I'm on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn and creating content. Like I used to create content every single day for Instagram, but I switched from that to TikTok. And so then I started to create content every day for TikTok. And I'm sort of moving over to LinkedIn because of that corporate reach. 
And I can no longer create content every single day for all platforms. That's where my burnout happens. And I'm really of the belief that if you are doing what you are meant to do, you are exercising your energies in the way that is most natural for you, then that probably won't happen. And so social media is a little bit of an unnatural activity for me. It it takes my energy. So that's that tends to be where people experience burnout, when they're reaching, when they're forcing things. But it seems quite natural for you because you've been quite consistent. So how do you come up with your content? Because you always seem to be quite uh, fresh about it. You know, uh, a lot of ideas come from my work with my clients. And as soon as I start to identify certain themes across more than one client, sometimes there will even be weeks where every session across different people is somehow the same session. Wow. <laughs> They're all having the same problem. I'm like, wow, the universe is really trying to tell me something or there's something in the water <laughs> or the air. And yeah, so I actually get a lot of ideas from clients, but also just my friends. You can imagine I'm the person that a, a lot of my friends, they like to call up and tell me about their problems as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so what's the most common problem then since you mentioned you know, everyone seems to you know, have the same problems in the oh my universe. God, social media. Social media. <laughs> Everyone's oh, really oh, man. every every single client across the board, if they are an entrepreneur, social media comes up as a topic. I really feel like I'm supposed to do social media, but I can't make myself do it. And then they enter this cycle of judgment and they get really mad at themselves and they're frustrated and they're like I should do social media because that's what everybody tells me and I'm like so <laughs> they tell you <laughs> it's interesting because I, I used to do social media I still do it right I do it for my clients but I don't do it for myself because it's enough already doing it for my clients and and this is something that all the social um, social media clients will tell me as well I know I'm supposed to be doing it but I just don't want to do it. I I don't know how to do it. Can you help me? But of course, I help them in a very different way as you know what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting that it affects someone so much that they would feel like, I need to talk to someone about this. <laughs> Did you know that you could also have a spot on the Uncool podcast? Drop us an email at contact at creatorsatwork.asia to find out about the sponsorship and collaboration opportunities available. Do you find that racial, that culturally, you know, the way we talk to people is different? I noticed in, well, at least I don't know if it, it applies to, to to the US, but in at least in Singapore, at least there's this perception that, oh, you know, as at least as creatives, like if I go for a pitch, right, for example, and if a white guy says it, even though he's saying the same thing as, as the Asian, but he, he did it better because, you know, he's white. I think that's pretty complicated. I would guess that from the perception, there are a lot of stereotypes we face, especially when you think about places like the Philippines, you know, that outsourced really cheap creative labor. And there is somewhat of a perception in Asia that somehow everybody in America are rich. You know, it's like, that's a real thing. I know that Americans or like, say, white people aren't really any better or any different. I mean, there there may be some privileges that they have, but that would be the same across any culture. Like if you are wealthier, you're going to have privilege. And that's just the truth. But I think there is a big part here with outsourced creative labor to other countries like the Philippines and you know maybe even Malaysia or Singapore any in the region where it's just 
that's part of the battle you have to fight. It's like diving into the history of economics or something like that. <laughs> Word economics. Yeah. I mean, when you come to America and you talk about the same issue, but in a different setting, then it's different because now we're talking about if you were saying a white male saying something, you know, in a corporate job versus an Asian male, it may be because the Asian male is speaking with a different style of voice, has different body language, tends to maybe appear a little bit submissive. I remember there was a man, an Asian man in one of the startups I worked at, and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself because this man is doing a presentation and I can barely hear him. And even after people asked him, like the president of our company asked him to speak up, asked him at least four times, and this guy did not speak up. So there are certain parts to our culture that I do think might be a little bit of a barrier because we're taught to be quiet, to be considerate of others, to consider the culture of we before I. And if you come to a place like here, the Western culture, which is much more individualized, it can be a challenge. That's true. I, I felt that a little bit when I, I first came over here. I, I think I had an easier time because I'm a bit of an extrovert and have a very thick skin. But um, definitely, I think suddenly thrown into being a minority, I would have to say, is, it's not just about you know what, what race you are, but uh, also the being a minority. You know, the, the tables just turn a little bit and it's a very subtle shift. And yeah, I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but I think it's a little bit of what you, you mentioned as well, which is it's very culturally ingrained in this, not to be able to speak up in a crowd and, and speak up to let your voice be heard or be individualistic. Yeah, for sure. You know, cultures like Japan, to stand out is like a crime. You know, you don't want to be the one that sticks out. I think my friend called it like it's like a nail that sticks out higher. It has to be hammered down. It's like that does not help. Actually, do you find that social media sort of made talking to people uncool? Because everyone's all very connected in a sense, but not really that connected as well. I, I don't think you would know all the 2,000 people following you or 20,000 people following you, right? So in a sense, yeah, did social media make talking to people uncool? You know, I don't think social media did it. I think it was texting that did it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how old you two are, but it's like, my God, I'm from the generation where I grew up with talking to my friends on the phone, you know, like middle school, high school, like we would actually call each other and talk on the phone. And do you know how hard it is for me to get people on the phone today? Like even my sister, she's like, why are you calling me? <laughs> like text me. <laughs> Like right now, I'm across the world from them, right? The first few times I caught them, like, what are you calling? Is there an emergency? Is someone dying? <laughs> are you okay? Do you have money? <laughs> like, do I have to have all these reasons before I call you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the basically like, is something wrong? Why are you calling me? Oh my God. <laughs> That's true. We forgot about the texting phase and then we went straight to social media. <laughs> How about the hardest case you have ever faced? What do you think that was without revealing too much about uh, this person or this case though? Uh, I would say there are a couple of hardest cases. Okay, so on the one side, hardest cases around family. So anything around family, like your spouse or your parents, especially Asian parents, that's like a real big thing for people. It's just so hard. You know, you're raised to be respectful you can never talk back. You can never disagree even. And depending on, you know, how how open your parents were and how they raised you, you know, you can be like me where my parents didn't really teach me how to disagree in a healthy way. 
because it was not really allowed. You know, punishment was a real thing. But for people with their spouses, that tends to be also very common when they're not on the same page. And, you know, I've even worked with clients where they revealed that perhaps their choice of that spouse they have was never the right choice. And they knew that and they still marry that person. You know, it's like, oh my God, right? So I would say on the personal side, it's those two things. Family is always the hardest, always the hardest. So for instance, one of my clients, she had such a hard time with her parents. And when I asked her, I was like, you know, your parents look pretty young. Like, you know, how old are they? So it turned out they had her when they were 20. I was like, oh my God, they're still children when they had you. And it had never occurred to her that they simply did not know how to be parents. She had never once thought about how young they actually were when they had her. So there was so much struggle around her feeling really angry at them, of course, but also wanting to be the good daughter, the proper daughter. And she felt like she had to forgive them. And I said, look, you can't rush this. Everybody has a processing phase. Something happens. You take some time to process and then you come to acceptance and then you come to forgiveness. What she was doing was trying to skip over all the processing because she was like, I don't want to blame my parents. And I'm like, but the fact is you were a victim to how they parented you. They simply did not know what they should have known. And that's true for like all parents. She was trying to skip over all the processing, all the yucky parts and just go straight to forgiveness. And I was like, that's just not how this works. So that tends to be like some of the most common things, um, setting boundaries with your family, of course. That's always sticky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that a few times as well. I was just thinking about this because I was talking to a few um, friends and colleagues who I realized I'm no longer the youngest in the room, by the way. So <laughs> I actually have advice to give. Um, and I think it was the same for me when, you know, you asked me 10 years ago. It was a very bitter kind of um, feeling towards parents. Especially, I think, I don't know if it's just an Asian parent thing or, you know, universally across a lot of cultures, you feel like you cannot talk to them. But I think as we all mature, we realize that uh, our, parents, our parents are human too. You know, most likely didn't know what, how to parent efficiently and no one had told them how to do so well. And I think there's no correct answer. So I think we only understand that a little bit more as we grow a bit older. Oh yeah, for sure. I like to say that the biggest mind f you will experience is the day you realize your parents are people outside of just being your parents. So what do you think you would have been if you were not a life coach? Probably burned out and really angry at Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most real, real answer ever. <laughs> But all jokes aside, I probably can't go back to Amazon. I think I burned a lot of bridges when I left. So, you know, Chris, you know, Chris, though, he, he still has the opinion that I should be selling SEO. So that might be where I would be instead. I actually still do teach some marketing. So it probably would be marketing, some sort of teaching SEO workshops, that sort of thing. I see. So if ever there was... Um point in time where you think okay maybe personal coaching a life coaching is not for me anymore you would go back to coaching marketing something in marketing yeah either that or doing public speaking full-time so that's the other piece that I also do is I'll put on workshops for companies you know where they bring me in to teach about imposter syndrome and 
help teach people how to do something about imposter syndrome. So I could see myself as a public speaker. And, you know, I love appearing on podcasts like you guys. So thank you for having me again. <laughs> so, it's, it's very so, fun <laughs> just talking to you guys. I know, I know. That's why we keep doing it. <laughs> oh, and a question we have to ask all our guests. When were you the most uncool? And what would you talk to yourself then if you could, you know, have that opportunity to address that uncool jewel? Oh my God, I would have to say middle school for sure. It was just so awkward. <laughs> it was so awkward. And it was because I felt so out of place. You know, I had just transferred school. So I was the new kid coming into the school, you know, when everybody else, like the school year had already started. I grew up in Alabama. I don't know how much you guys know about Alabama. There's like no Asian people there. <laughs> I grew up, I'm like the one Imagine. Asian kid in the entire school. It's just terrible. So when you grow up like that, if you feel out of place, like you have to understand it's natural to feel so uncomfortable, so uncool, so awkward. So just know that this is not forever. So on, on that note, Joel, um, what's up for you for the next few months? I actually have an upcoming release for affirmation cards. It's got like 52 cards. It's affirmation cards on self-love and with, you know, reflections on the card. So that's going to be where my attention is going over the next several months is to market the heck out of that deck and make sure it gets sold. In terms of where people can find me on TikTok and Instagram, it's the same handle at ITS Jewel Kim. So it's Jewel Kim. And then on LinkedIn, if you just look at my name, Jewel Kim, you'll see me there. So yeah, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Jewel, for giving us the time today. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Winchong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ung. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. On the next episode of Uncool, many of your, uh, your viewers are, are freelancers. Many of them are looking for work. Many of them are stressed about not having work. I would suggest that maybe they, they take the word freelancer out of their vocabulary and, and replace it with entrepreneur because that is automatically going to set them into a mindset of growth. Freelancer has kind of a negative sometimes connotation to it. Uncool. New episodes every Saturday.